everybody. Uh, we have a little housekeeping before we get into the episode as we reintroduce ourselves. My name is Jonathan Matos. Yes, and my name is Melissa Matos. That is the correct pronunciation of our last name. <laughs> yeah, uh, last time we said main house, and <laughs> <laughs> Melissa was like, "You can't, you can't introduce us as the white people that have forgotten their they forgotten how to pronounce their last names, their heritage." Um, so yeah, so that's just a little something to get out of the way. Uh, but thank you for listening. For those of you who. Um, downloaded our last podcast. We were surprised by the uh, numbers, and <clears throat> we're happy to have you. Um, th- today's episode is going to be uh, a little weird, <laughs> uh, because weird. yeah, because um, this it's it's something that I'm not really well versed in in terms of uh, reading um, uh, this type of sci-fi. Because before we got into uh, you know how we're we're both nerds and we like. Um, non-traditional or older sci-fi, but um, this is going back to what the like mid eighteen hundreds. Yeah, this is Victorian era sci-fi. That's Lovecraft, um, and I'm gonna give it over to Melissa now because <laughs> I'm not really uh, versed in this in this uh, lore. I'm I'm not necessarily a huge Lovecraft fan myself either, but I have read some of his stories and um, have fond memories of long nights playing Arkham Horror with friends, so um, I know a little bit more than John does, although most people in geek circles are familiar at least with Cthulhu and other mm-hmm. random weird Elder God names. Right. Um, but several tropes that are common to Lovecraftian horror type stories are this uh, concept of these Elder Gods, something that is so huge and outside of what humans are able to comprehend that they are instantly terrifying and can drive people mad just by having found out that they exist. Um, it is also common to have scientists as the protagonists who are attempting to understand everything about their environment or um, explain the unexplainable who get caught up in the in the horrors because it blows their mind. Um and there's also an element of, I don't know if you want to call it surrealism, but it is something like that where things are not what they should be and are off and odd and creepy in, in jarring ways. Mm. That's the main main parts of it. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah, I've, and that's kind of what we want to get into with this episode in terms of discussing uh, how those influences in... Um, modern things, uh, specifically uh, for this episode, Annihilation, uh, since uh, I have read the first book, uh, Melissa read the all the all three of the trilogy, it's called the Southern Reach Trilogy, and I went to see the movie with my girlfriend who said that it was weird but, but interesting, um, because it kind of blends uh, different kind of philosophical and scientific uh, types of themes because you get like you were saying surrealist stuff because often it's the main character dealing with something so um incomprehensible that you get like kind of magical realism vibes where they're describing it in in as close to what they can perceive um and so you get things like um you know this was 
radiating in a kind of glow, but it wasn't a glow, but it was kind of right. a, a shimmering blackness that engulfed everyone. And it's, yeah, it gets really weird. Um, but also it leads to oftentimes uh, themes of like nihilism. Um, specifically, I'm thinking of True Detective. I watched the first season of that on HBO. And uh, the main character dealt with the death of his daughter and uh, in getting this new partner on this really strange uh, case, you see how he has this uh, philosophy of avoidance where he says, you know, um, life isn't worth living and we should all like hold hands and walk off a cliff <laughs> together. Um, and so he is very nihilist, but the way that they portray his foil in the antagonist of the season um, there, there's this group of um, kind of powerful some, some people in this group are, are powerful religious leaders and um, they uh, it's based off, off true events but there was this child abuse ring and uh, it was um, what he called um, ritualistic um, like using violence as a ritualistic thing to please the Yellow King, which is an actual reference to something in uh, derived directly from a Lovecraft story. So uh, it, it was kind of using that unknowable type of terror to describe what this character went through. And because he uh, didn't want to deal with his emotions, he used this like philosophy that he had to, as a way of coping um, and throughout the series you're being presented this uh, slice of um, you know very a very corrupt society um, full of people that are struggling to tr try to figure out you know what their place is and how they can actually deal with this level of corruption that they're dealing with and so it uses that to kind of describe what that feels like um, and uh, we both listened to Night Vale, the podcast that um, there's this town and uh, it... All the weird, crazy conspiracy slash alien slash horror tropes theories yeah, it's, are it's, all true. It's a long form <laughs> thing. And so you get some episodes that are very much like this is uh, this black hole, as you were describing before the podcast, this black hole is a metaphor for... Um, the loss that this family is feeling as they're coping with uh, a loss in their in their family, and then to to like librarians in this version of uh, reality are horrible creatures that you don't want to mess with, and it, it's very much used for comedy, um, and dark, so dark kind of comedy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's it's very like off putting for I would assume some people, and um, but it. It's a very interesting uh, way of writing horror because um, as we get into the movie, the producer of the movie version of Annihilation, um, he said that the, the movie was going to be too complex and um, intellectual for people to deal with because in, in sci-fi horror, you normally just got um, a very straight analogy between this is a, a crazy AI robot and we shouldn't trust technology with all of our uh, 
infrastructure or else we're all gonna die <laughs> or um right they stick to the tropes a bit more or they they give you one one thing to worry about <laughs> right but one this, kind of archetype to right. say like this is um this is you know you can't trust like uh the, the corn in one of the earlier star trek episodes it's this lizard that stands for some type of creature that at first looks horrifying and then you realize it's just they're just different and and just because something looks different doesn't mean that it's completely uh evil um but i was curious based on the advertisements for the movie mm -hmm. how they were well let me put it a different way <laughs> i saw the advertisements for the movie before i read the book uh -huh. and then i read the book and was not expecting what happened in the book based on how they were advertising the movie. Right. So, yeah, I was very curious as to how they were going to deal with the strangeness that was this story in a movie. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I would say that what they what they did um, does deal uh, with the the monster in a subtle way, and and it's um, it's is very much like putting the emotions of the characters um before the um because the the producer's comments were uh defended by another producer and and he was fighting for the movie not to get changed and, and it wasn't changed from um the director alex garland's vision who had previously done ex machina and to to compare those two really quick the um ex machina was very much uh, like a, a weird nihilist um, depiction of humanity and it, it kind of leaves you with this bad taste in your mouth. Very um, much. I <laughs> was not a fan of that movie. Uh, and But this, I think, um, represents the, the characters as very, like, they feel real and it, it feels like how you would you know, really deal with this type of, um, investigation, and, um, the, uh, the main character, Natalie Portman, plays the biologist, um, she, you can tell that she has this, this, um, relationship, um, that she doesn't really feel whole in, and that, that, um, you know, her, and, and, uh, her husband, played by Oscar Isaac, um, really are on the same level, um, and uh, e even though that there there are still some character choices within the story, because Oscar Isaac in, in this story in, in in the book version too goes on a earlier uh, expedition to this place called Area X, and Area X is this what's called like a pristine wilderness that. Um, is emanating or expanding from this one, um, like, it's, it's kind of difficult to explain. <laughs> but, do they do the tower? Is that what it's coming from in the um, movie? It, well, no, they, they kind of switch that with the lighthouse. Oh, okay. So it, in the, in the book, there's a lighthouse and there's a tower and, uh, you get very early on from the biologist character that she is somehow affected by this uh, stuff that that is taking over um, because 
after she comes back and it's not the same, she decides to go to Area X to investigate for herself. And kind of the emotional back uh, subtext to this is that they were having difficulties in their relationship. And uh, when he comes back and is just completely shell-shocked and not um, emotionally, you know, giving it all, when she goes to Area X and uh, is trying to learn about the environment, what she's really trying to do is learn why he would go on this suicide mission and, you know, what, uh, whether, you know, it was completely inevitable that their relationship would kind of self-destruct. And that's really the theme of the movie, is that um, the psychologist who is the actually the director of the Southern Reach, the organization sending people into Area X, uh, she's played by um, Jennifer Jason Lee, and you really get from her performance uh, that she is completely drained by just sending team after team after team. And knowing that they're dying. Yeah. Um, and, and or so, not coming back normal. Right. And so... Um, her, her performance is really good to convey that kind of struggle that she's going through. Um, but you also have uh, a physicist who uh, they reveal has had issues with harming herself in the past. Oh. Um, and and uh, they, they use the environment um, to uh, show kind of her um, complex that she has. Um, and then... Uh, this, this newcomer, uh, Tuva Novotny, who I've never seen in a movie before, is a geomorphologist. So oh. that, that they changed that from the book. They yeah. have very set roles what in the book. What does that even mean? That, um, <laughs> uh, no. Like, did they study the changes? Oh, I guess so she studies the changes of environments. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That, that, that's what I would assume. I, I'm not, I'm not a geomorphologist of, of, myself. Of but the earth. Yeah. Um, and a, a paramedic, which I think was kind of a good change because yeah, like why you would didn't think you send, you would send one of those people... in with the rest of the expeditions? Yeah. Um, and well, they uh, had her husband was a was an EMT, right? But you would think you keep doing that. like you would yeah <laughs> do that um, with more than but uh, I, I would say that the one weakness of the film is that that it does try to give um, each character some kind of um, arc and and it, it doesn't always like the fact that it's based on this main character who has this uh, very deep um, character of herself if you are interested in the other characters it's not really you might want it to be like an ensemble thing and I know you know um, there are people that are excited to see you know diversity in in sci-fi movies and things like that and when you have Tessa Thompson and Gina Rodriguez playing characters and they don't necessarily get uh, you know as much screen time and, and you see them in the trailer and you think oh great this is like a, a weird female Ghostbusters that yeah. <laughs> I get to like uh, tear into um, it's well, not I was that. hoping it was going to be more like a Michael Crichton science fiction story uh -huh. where like you have a group of scientists and it is like a, an ensemble thing where you're following each of the characters as they face this crazy right sci-fi yeah thing it's, it's, that they all fight their way through it it's very interesting because it it almost seems like an asimov um type of type of thing where like it's very much these uh, like 
with the different roles of the team members, it's like you get these little snippets of characterization, and even though uh, the actors do a good job of portraying like subtleties, there's not really much I think in the text that like explains enough to where like each one's the ending of their arc is as satisfying. Um, but at the same time, I don't necessarily see like I don't really agree with the producer's idea that it was uh, too. I mean, it, it is a complex type of movie in that you're not. It's not allegorical. It's not, you know, trying to. It's say, not a typical monster movie. It's not a typical science fiction story. Yeah. So trying to combine that for audiences that may not be used to, because I don't know of any Lovecraft movies per se. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there are some. I haven't gone looking for them because, like I right. said, it's not my main fandom. But um, for people who aren't used to that, it would be a lot to try and explain the concept of that without going into the details. So for even in the books, you don't really learn the main extent of what's going on until the end of the third one. Right. So trying to pack all of that into one movie right. would be rather complicated. And, but and So uh, for those of you who want to watch the movie, I'm about to spoil it, so... <laughs> You can uh, skip over, uh, 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 you know, 30 seconds, and I'll be done (laughs) Um, with the spoilers. Basically, what they do with the movie is instead of making it a uh, creature that's come, uh, they make it genetic, um, spectral, like an event More basically like a that happens or to you. That happens. Yeah, it's something that happens where the minute you go into this uh, area, everything gets spliced into the mechanics of the environment. So you start um, like the one character is killed by an animal and then comes back basically in this bear creature that has like her voice when it screams and stuff. So. Um, basically what it's trying to do is um it's trying to basically show this um self-destructive um thing that happens to to people psychologically through um this environment and instead of uh making some kind of um larger lore or or lovecraftian thing which is what it seemed like it was trying to build from, and and that's that's what kind of frustrates me about the book, uh, and I'll let you go into that further. But uh, it seems like it's setting up um, some kind of encounter with this thing, and you know, invite some kind of understanding as to what this thing is by the end of the book. The first one doesn't necessarily. Um, it does that for the character in, in that she is infected by it and, um, you know, uh, is is kind of like, you, you feel like by the end of it, 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 she's almost like on its side, like, yeah, uh, uh, like poison ivy or something, like she becomes this weird, like human <laughs> plant hybrid that like is wanting all this stuff to get more and more, you know, like... And, and uh, because I'm reading, I'm about halfway through the second book right now, and it seems like because of how she talks to the people that are interrogating her, she's trying to obfuscate their 
investigation, and the only logical thing for me is that it she's um, basically been um, I don't know how you would put it not body snatched. Right. <laughs> there's there's something part of her that is that not is no longer her, her anymore. anymore. Um, so yeah. Spoilers so, for the books now. So the movie doesn't really have a specific creature or or source necessarily. It's yeah, there, there's a, no crawler. An area. Uh, there's this weird. Uh, I'm gonna get into that when we talk about the book, the crawler thing. <laughs> uh-huh. But I just wanted to, to clarify, and they, and it tried to give each of the different characters its own arc. Yeah. In the, the, well, the, there is a thing that um, represents kind of the DNA replacement. Oh, okay. Stuff. Um, there's the, um, this mirror creature where, like, it starts, there's this, like, almost, like, black, um, humanoid thing that pops up and is, like, d- making every move that she does. Oh. It's a very creepy kind of, um, thing, and you get the idea that it's trying to learn how to be, how to look like her, and it's, right. like, changing and stuff. Um, and, uh... More spoilers. The uh, you you find out that the um, video that they got from um, the Area X lighthouse was um, the double of her husband. Okay. Or no, it was the it was the original her her husband basically saying uh, who had been infected somehow, basically like saying not to come there or giving some kind of message and then uh, blowing himself up. Um, but it, it's, it's, it has that the same subtleties that the book does where it's not necessarily like that there's this evil creature that wants to take over and is, you know, has a very specific goal. Right. It's just trying to you, you you get the mechanic of it copying people and uh, there's a line later on in the thing where she says um, it uh, it's not trying to invade it's just it just wants to change things so uh, it you're not sure whether that's the character coming out of this kind of fog that she's been in and saying like you know it's not necessarily bad. Um, or if it's just, if it has changed her and so that it's, she's basically like some kind of zombie and whether it's a, like a negative thing. Um, so if you had to pick a main theme for what they were trying to communicate from the movie, what do you think that was? I would say that there's a, well, there's a theme, there's a kind of weird sick motto that the psychologist uh, discusses with the Natalie Portman, the main character, early on in the um, movie where she says, we think that self-destruction is a um, unnatural thing, but it's, like, part of who we are. Like, everything dies, basically. So, um, it, it, it's very, it, that part of it is very off-putting to me about look crafty and things in general because it's basically in one way it's in, if you take it in one sense it's saying things are uh, outside of your control and unknowable so 
the only thing that this can do is cause you to lose your mind. <laughs> but then, if you look at it as, uh, in the sense of the main characters have a hubris where they need to understand everything, and specifically in Annihilation, the characters have this uh, self-destructive bent that you see, um, instead of dealing with their problems, they just dive into this larger thing where, like, it's gonna unravel them, and they're kind of complicit in their own annihilation. <laughs> um, then you can see it that way where, like, you know, it's really the character's fault for, you know, treading where they shouldn't, where only weird amorphous aliens tread. <laughs> so... <laughs> So, yeah, let me know what happens in the book and explain some so of this So you're okay to me. if I spoil the book for you? Absolutely, okay. because I need some motivation to keep reading. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm going to try and unpack it as the three different books, because you discover different things as right. you get through them. Um, so, one of the main things that I was not expecting in the book was from the from the movie advertisements it looked more like a yes it was a like a scary horror science fiction story mm -hmm. but I thought it was going to be a more straightforward your DNA is getting changed by whatever this creepiness is mm -hmm. I was not expecting to read halfway through the book and find some strange Lovecraftian creature in a in a it wasn't really a tower she kept calling it a tower but it went underground yeah kind of like a seed yeah. Like this thing gets... Planted in the ground. Yeah. From the atmosphere, it comes down and, and, and pierces and is the earth. Into the earth. And there is this creature that is described in very strange terms. Um, if you've ever seen a tardigrade, if you picture a really big tardigrade, like bigger than person-sized one, that is writing on the walls up and down the inside of this thing, which... To me, sounds so much different than what I was expecting this story to be about. But the reason it the the, the biologist is the main character in the in the book. There are some um, arcs and changes for the other characters, but the main thrust is her and this search for why she was so disconnected from her husband, even before he goes into the thing, mm -hmm. into the the breach. That's not the breach. Whatever they call it. The, the, the border. The border. Mm -hmm. um, and it actually ends with her determined to find him. Mm -hmm. Like, he isn't dead, technically, in the book. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason she doesn't get as affected as all the other scientists that are in there, she thinks, is because she breathes in some of the spores from the creatures that are living in the this tower. tower. Um, and then when the things start to change her, she realizes she can keep it from completely taking over her body if she keeps hurting herself. Mm. So there is definitely something that she realizes is inside of her and trying to change her into something else. Mm. But if she is harmed, if, like and somebody at some point she gets very hurt, the, the one of the other characters realizes that she's been taken over and is trying to kill her. But she realizes when she gets hurt, she gets healed very quickly, but it's because of this stuff that's in her. Mm -hmm. She also does ex uh, realize that the stuff is trying to change the environment. It's not only recreating some of the creatures, but it is taking all the toxins out of the environment. Mm -hmm. They've done all the samples of things that they had have no 
pollutions in them at all. Right. Even the people, when they come back, have no pollutants in them. And even though it might, whether it's the same person that coming back or not, mm-hmm. um, they take a plant out of the place that never dies, and they try, that comes up in the second book, but they tried everything to try and kill this plant, and it will not die. Mm-hmm. So, the first book kind of gives you this whole... It, it, it talks a lot about communication mm-hmm. and the problems of, of... So, the biologist is a very antisocial person. Right. And she realizes through the course of the book that she cut herself off from her husband. Right. And when she finally finds her husband's journals in the lighthouse, she realizes his whole thing was trying to get back in touch with her. Mm-hmm. He writes his scientific discoveries about the border to her personally right so she's like well fine if he's gonna be trying to make this connection still i'm gonna go find him and figure out what happened to him Mm. Uh, so that's how the first book kind of ends with this idea that whatever this is either hasn't figured out how to communicate with us or doesn't care if it can communicate with us. Right. Because to it, it's like talking to ants. Like, it knows we will never understand what it's doing. Right. So it's just doing what it needs to do. Mm-hmm. She doesn't know quite what that is. Right. So she never really discovers the whole end goal of whatever mm-hmm. Area X is. Except that it is changing the, the environment around them. And so, to interject, I read the first book, and I was completely interested the whole way through. Because I... I liked her character and that kind of like introverted um, character is is unique to me within sci-fi. It's not really you, you get characters that um, might have like confidence issues and stuff like that, but that whole metaphor about communication and um, that being the reason why she is um, wants to be subsumed by this thing. Um, because it's the, her last connection to um, her husband, who, as far as she knows, is, is either dead or, or not um, human anymore. Yeah. Um, and what what was a weird issue with me with the next one is because I I, I want to ask you. It seems like some of the uh, things that she has said in the first book are contradicted by reports in the second one, like because he mentions. I thought he mentioned that one of the people that died wandered um, into the Southern Reach later on. Um, Which person that died? Um, I thought the person that she shot. She shot the. Um, okay, so the second book. The second book is an entirely different narrator. It is a. I don't know if they're CIA or FBI or who they're supposed to be. It is yeah, a government it's, it's agent. It's a weird third party organization. Yes, he's he's the government agent that gets sent to. Exp- to figure out what's going wrong at the facility that is studying Area X. So, the the first book ends with everyone except the biologist dying in Area X. Right? Everybody's dead. Yeah, everybody that she has gone with. That she has gone in with is dead, except the linguist who didn't go in to begin with. The second book, the biologist is now back at the facility... And he is interrogating her. And a similar thing that happened with her husband's expedition happened where they find all of the party members, but they all don't come back out the same way they came in. They show up back at their homes. Right. 
All except the biologist, who is not as tied to her home. She went, ends up at a place that she used to observe all the time. She had this habit of going off and just staring at small ecosystems that she could find. So there was a like a abandoned lot she used to go and watch all the creatures live in. And that's where they find her. Right. But, um... So all of these party members who, in the first book, you understand to have died, are now alive and mm. back. And you're like, what's going on? Mm. Um... So he starts to figure out a whole lot of interesting things that they lied to the biologist about. For example, the first expedition that goes in supposedly all came out fine. Okay. Which is a total lie. They all died. Right. Um, the... And halfway through he gets to watch video of what happened to them. And it is very much, again, you were talking about them, the... Whatever it is in there, it mimicking people. Uh-huh. The whole first party runs into mimics of themselves mm-hmm. and freaks out. Right. But then, as the video keeps going, they start changing and start speaking an entirely different language. Mm-hmm. So one of them will be talking in some weird language that no one's ever heard, but the other people respond to them in English like they understood what they said. Mm-hmm. So there's like all this weird... It was a very psycho <laughs> part where they're trying to explain ah. what happened to the first expedition. Um this is also when you realize, in the first book you don't know this, but the second book reveals that the psychologist is actually the director of that area. Mm-hmm. Um, and she is trying to... You you get very early on that she and several others there are trying to keep information from this guy who's investigating what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a lot more... This is also one of those ones where it's very focused on the main this main character. I forget his name already. What they call oh, him? He, he calls himself. He calls the himself troll. the control. That's right. But his real name is John Rodriguez, right. I think. So, a lot of his issues are with his mother, hmm. who he finds out is actually orchestrating a lot of what's going on. Right. It's a very, it's a very Manchurian Candidate feeling kind of mm-hmm. <laughs> story. Um, but you start to realize by the end of that book that the area X is expanding. Right. And has already leaked into the research facility. There's a part I, I remember for the, where they say that the bunnies that they, in one experiment, oh, the bunnies. they let go the and all of a sudden a lot of them disappear. All of a sudden they realize that some of them have, have come been back out. mating with rabbits that are that, yeah, inherent to Area X and that they've been just selling them to random people. Yeah. And it's just like, what, just like, what, like did you not think that you maybe mental? they came back out because other people came back out and you didn't know that they, yeah, it was such, <laughs> they're like, what is wrong with you people? So, um, he begins to realize that he is being manipulated through this whole thing mm-hmm. and that Area X has expanded and is going to expand mm-hmm. even further. Right. And, and I got some of those hints with like the person that, uh, he's reporting to is called The Voice. Yes. Which to me very much harkens back to like something like 1984. Yeah. Where people have different, or I don't know if I'm, oh no, I'm confusing that with V for Vendetta. In V for Vendetta, they call like the cops the feet and the. Right. It's the, like different. Different body parts and stuff, so. But the other major realization that happens through the book is that the biologist is not the biologist. Okay. The person that they have in the research facility is a copy of the biologist. Okay. And she tells him that at some point during the novel. But he still very much feels an attachment to her. Mm-hmm. So they escape when the thing expands. Mm-hmm. Even though everybody else in the facility gets consumed or whatever by this uh-huh. thing that is expanding. Right. They manage to get away. But then she talks him into going back. 
so that they can figure out, because she wants to know what happened to the first biologist. Right. Because she's very upset that she's like, I'm this copy and I don't even know what I am uh. or what I'm supposed to be doing. I have no idea what I'm going to do in this life. Uh. So I'm going to go back and talk to her so I can figure out who I am. Right. Basically. So they end up creating, finding another way in. Okay. So that they don't have to go back to Area X. They find a different portal into the thing. So book three <laughs> uh, starts with them, and it follows several different people. So it follows them looking for the biologist. It brings the original biologist back and gives her point of view of what happened when she started looking for her husband. It is, follows the psychologist, the actual psychologist, not the copy of the psychologist that comes out of the breach or whatever that is. Mm -hmm. That gets complicated. And the lighthouse keeper, who was the first person when this event originally happened that got affected by this thing. So it's all four stories going simultaneously, so you, you start to learn different stuff as you're going, and it bounces around between all their stories. Mm. Um, the lighthouse keeper, you find out, and this is when it gets very Lovecraftian, because there are actually even official cultists and whatever that show up that are trying to make this thing happen. Mm. Um, I forget what they call themselves, the seance and something okay. group. It's like, it's a mixture of spiritism and science. So it's okay. like a seance and research or seance and something. I oh, yeah, that. yeah, I think right? I remember them making fun of them. Right. So they're there talking to the lighthouse keeper a lot and investigating what's going on around the lighthouse. Uh, and this brings in, there's an island further north where there was another lighthouse that's now ruined. But the two are related. They took the lens from that ruined lighthouse and it's now in this nearer lighthouse that's sort of the focal point of the story. Um, and you find out that they realize the glass that is in the lighthouse is actually made from something that fell out of space, so they took part of that out, mm. and it pricks the lighthouse keeper, which is how he gets infected uh. by this thing. So he becomes the first one infected, and he becomes the crawler that is in the right. tower. And he's trying to, and he was already, he had been a preacher, and before he became a lighthouse keeper. So that's why the language that is presented oh, before is okay. so mixed with what sounds like religious dogma is because it's him, it's his brain trying to merge that with what's happening to him. Right. Um, the copy of the biologist and the control are trying to find the first biologist and have to go through what remains of all the horrors that are in this Area X and find all the, the transformed people mm. that are no longer people but are strange creatures now mm. living in there. Um, the psychologist... I'm trying to remember what happens to her now. I don't remember now. I have to think about that one. But the biologist becomes like a massive weird, worm-like creature. Mm -hmm. And at some point you stop, like, I mean, the end of her journal cuts off way before the rest of their stories, really. Right. So, because she's not writing anymore as this creature that she is. Right. 
but you eventually get the, the concept that what came to Earth in this thing was basically some alien civilization's terraforming program. Okay. Like, it's supposed to land on a planet that has no life on it and transform the place into someplace something livable. Uh-huh. But it landed here. So it is overriding everything okay. that it finds because that's what it's written to do. Mm-hmm. And so all of the creatures that get transformed become basically sentinels for for this program. Like, mm-hmm. I'm going to defend the life that is here because this is what's supposed to be being created. Right. So, um, and they realize that's the main thing that the control and the copied biologist realize. When they go back into... Area X, they are not on Earth anymore. Mm-hmm. Area X is actually some sort of pocket dimension that takes them to another planet. The stars are different. Oh, okay. Like, they're in a different location. Mm. So it is like this weird interdimensional bleeding thing that's happening. Okay. That apparently these aliens were... could live interdimensionally. The biologist in her new weird form can do that. Can be wherever she wants to be mm-hmm. with a thought. Because that's how the aliens are. So she eventually, she shows up because the copy of the biologist is like hanging out in the lighthouse and she sees her coming and like the new big creature that is the old biologist shows up and knocks everything else down but is basically staring at the copy of herself because she remembers what she was but she can't really communicate with it anymore. So it's this weird moment that they get to have in the lighthouse Control, though, is living up to his name and trying to figure out, how do I stop this from killing the Earth? Like, that's his main goal in life. Right. It's like, this is gonna kill everybody. How do we stop it from happening? Um, so that's... He tries to, to at least figure out some kind of way to contain it or figure out what it is mm-hmm. and if it's possible to be stopped. Right. Um, uh, most of the psychologist stuff is actually before the, before the first book. Okay. That's why it was weird for me to place it. So you realize all the stuff that she had to go through to set up that new expedition and why she wanted to go on it, that she actually had gone into the breach alone Mm -hmm. with one of the other people from the facility, which is why it it started leaking into the facility, because they brought it back with them. Oh. Uh, The the scrawny guy. I keep thinking, forgetting his name. Uh, Oh, Whitley? Whitley. Her and Whitley go in unauthorized as not an expedition they just go in to see what happened right and come back out and whitley's never the same again mm-hmm. neither is she really but she's like i needed to see what i was sending people to die for mm-hmm. you know so yeah so that's what the big thing is at the end this is uh-huh. some weird alien program gone horribly wrong but yeah. it is transforming this dimension into mm-hmm. something that these aliens could live on right yeah, so I, I, I think to my final thoughts on the whole, because it seems like the themes of both are very similar, is that it's it's unattractive to me in a story where it seems like the horror um, that it's trying to create is so overwhelming that the main characters can't overcome it in some way, uh, because it... It, it is an interesting and a, and a, you know, it shows the talent of the people creating it when um, you are able to make something, as innocuous as um, this weird environment that, you know, he describes in the books and then uh, Alec Garland portrays in the movie. 
you know, it, it shows talent of the people doing it when you can make something like that um, interesting and engrossing when, you know, it's pretty much just like fungus or, you know, some, you know, like the, the elements themselves taken by themselves without the combination of elements um, is not in inherently uh, horrifying. But when you make it something like um, you're discussing that doesn't, it's just a program, it's just a, a, a biology being executed um, without emotion over the, the course of the, um, the transaction that it's doing. Um, but, you know, what makes, what makes stories satisfying to me uh, are when you see the characters that have some kind of problem and you're able to, even if it's something, and, and, and in my own writing, something that is a very complex emotional problem, I'm, if I'm writing a story about it, I'm trying to come up with some kind of insight and catharsis for the reader. And it's, it's interesting in sci-fi horror where you, you get all these insights about uh, some kind of scientific thing, but then it makes it seem like, you know, the only thing that biology does, for example, is destroy a thing. <laughs> like, there's, there's not really any, you know, um, insight into um, what is, um, you know, it, it seems like it, it's a very cynical idea of beauty even when it does say that things are beautiful. Because it always puts it in the context of this is beautiful and it's destroying my mind. <laughs> um, so it, that that those are the parts that are unattractive to me, but I will give it credit for being a, a story that um, you know has enthralled people with this idea of this environment um, that is um, you know like it seems like the ideas in it are very attractive to the people that are fans of the books and, and it, it is very unique in sci-fi horror that it um, creates some a, a villain that is not necessarily villainous and and uh, is a good I, I guess entry in the Lovecraftian thing if you like that kind of storyline but what what are your final thoughts on the, on the story at large like is it are there things what do you like about it what do you um, I think think could be improved I think the way the the individuals overcome stuff. Like, I, I understand it's it's not really like the human race bands together and beats this thing back or anything. Like, so it's there's not, not independence. There's not this great, like, huge okay, we beat the bad guys, because it really isn't a bad guy, it's just a thing doing its thing. It's a mindless, right. like you're saying, thing that's just doing what it's supposed to do. Um, but I do like the personal stories that each of them goes through, like her coming to terms with why her and her husband had a bad relationship, or Control coming to terms with his mother, um, and then in the fourth book, several of them coming to terms with their own personal struggles. I think that gives some feelings of catharsis, yeah. even though the main story doesn't give it to you. Um, but there is, too, also, Control does kind of make a breakthrough at the end. You're not really quite sure what, but there is something that he manages to do mm -hmm. that may or may not fix things. Okay. Um, because there's the that doorway at the bottom of the tunnel mm -hmm. that everybody keeps trying to get to, but they can't get past the crawler mm -hmm. thing. He does eventually get through that, 
which I think kind of symbolizes him figuring out some way to deal with what's going on. Mm. Um, but, yeah, generally, I agree with you, the whole concept of this big, huge, unknowable, and so much more powerful than we are thing that we could do nothing about that is destroying us mm. by its existence right. is really... Not just unsatisfying. It's a very depressing thought, yeah. right? It's it's a very not happy ending, um, especially since it goes against kind of our personal philosophies of yes, there is big unknowable things out there, but as God, you believe it loves you and cares that you exist, and you know isn't in yeah, existence to destroy you. Th- I think we're used to there being philosophers that um, use. Um, God as a metaphor, like in their philosophies, they believe that God stands for only those parts of reality that are unknowable, and um, if you accept that reality in itself is something that is completely outside of our control, um, it, it and and if you focus in that area and you make it a a thing that basically says so the people that are religious and um, that do think that they have an understanding of how the universe came into existence and those things they're just lying to you so th- it there's that association with it even though this story doesn't really have any you know it's not conspiracy theorists it's not no. saying that the Southern Reach are these evil um it's not like the government's trying to make it happen. The only people really trying to work toward it are the the cultist type people, uh-huh. but I don't think they understood what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's not there's not any that that was another refreshing thing about the story was that it wasn't uh, politically uh, you know motivated. It's it or or um, anti um, religion in any way, um, which you know and a lot of this type of thing, like, you have what I was getting at with the, the scientist that, that goes nuts. It's not necessarily saying that humans uh, have a hubris that um, is self-destructive and that we're doomed to not understanding anything. Um, you, you, you get some characters that are um, like... Uh, it's kind of annoying in the second book to me. They the the main character is very critical of different characters specifically, but as you're describing where it goes, um, it does show you how his own lack of connection with his mother and with um, his career and different decisions that he's made um, has led him to be um, cynical and. Um, unjustifiably um, arrogant, you know, and and, um, it's cool to me that later on it shows different ways that humans do deal with things that they can't understand. Um, So yeah, so I I think it's a good, um, you know, it's a net positive in terms of addition to the genre. It's It's definitely fascinating. It is a very fascinating thing to read. It is just really well written, very different than most of what I've seen mm. or read, read recently. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, fascinating is the word I'm going to have to go with. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so it's a recommend for us. Definitely something that you should see for yourselves, um, whether in in regards to the movie. And um, I can say with what I've read of the book so far, uh, Melissa's convinced me to give it a second shot (laughs) in terms of reading because I'm kind of trudging through the second book. Um, But yeah, uh, I'm I'm not um, quite sure what we're doing next week. Um, it could be, um, for the future, I can at least say that we're going to go over, um, RPGs. Which I'm looking forward to. Love RPGs. (laughs) And, uh, I'm looking forward to, uh, a game coming out called, um, it's, no, it's not Ex Machina. That's another, (laughs) I'm looking for video game RPGs to, to basically go through that genre and, and discuss, the differences between tabletop RPGs and video games. Um, so look forward to that in the future. Uh, otherwise, thanks for listening. Yep, thank you. And we'll see you later. Bye. Hey guys, this is post-podcast John letting you guys know that next week's podcast is not going to be about RPGs. Rather, um, the next week's podcast coming out April 16th is going to be Girl Power Gone Wild featuring Tyler Perry's Acrimony. Uh, April 23rd will be Mastering Dungeons, and that'll be largely Melissa explaining to me the ins and outs of RPG, and us both talking about the parts of RPG that are more like a game, and the parts that are more like communal storytelling. Uh, Coming up April 30th, uh, we're going to talk about Avengers Infinity War, intertextuality within the Marvel Universe, and you might want to read Infinity Gauntlet, because... Melissa's going to try to reference uh, how it adapts the original graphic novel. And you might also want to read Fahrenheit 451 for uh, May 21st episode. Um, We just want to give you a heads up, really, for uh, which movies you might want to watch and which books you might want to read if you want to um, really be prepared for the episodes and uh, be prepared to have spoilers if you care about those things, although we will try to keep spoilers towards the end of the episode. But uh, thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy the episodes coming up.